good morning, everybody. It feels like a little bit more of a, a low-key Sunday today. That's all right. Uh, I don't think I'm alone when I say it was it was a bit of a week. Uh, things are. It's it's kind of that point uh, in the semester. I think. I think we've hit, you know, where it's full-on Miracle Month mode, and, and we're all kind of feeling it. Students or or not, uh, we're there. But at any rate, we are here together to worship the Lord. The Holy Spirit isn't dependent on our own levels of energy in order to operate. He operates at all times and all places. So we're going to look at the closing passage of the book of Ephesians. So I suspect I probably wasn't alone in uh, browsing the shelves of the library's used book sale a few weeks ago. Who else uh, spent some time browsing around in in the used book sale? Oh, yeah, a lot, lot of students. That's good. I suspect I wasn't alone, and I was right. I, I, I picked up a few volumes for my office, you know, church leadership and, and theological dictionaries and such, but I also picked up some history. I got Pierre Burton's The National Dream and The Last Spike, as well as a book on Admiral Horatio Nelson and the Battle of Trafalgar. Hands up, who knows about the Battle of Trafalgar? Oh, that's that's what I thought. As, as happens with most things that like change the course of world history, we don't know a lot about them. So let's let's have a little refresher, shall we? It was 1805, and Napoleon was still entering, entertaining thoughts of crossing the English Channel and invading Great Britain. But of course, in order to do that he had to find a way across the English Channel at a time when the Royal Navy basically controlled all oceans in the entire world. So not an easy thing. And for some time, the Royal Navy had kept up this blockade of the French and their allies, the Spanish, and just kept them holed up in port such that they weren't really able to sail around and do a whole lot of anything. But that sort of standoff and the blockade, those don't go on forever. And it all came to a head on uh, October 21st, of that year, 1805, just off the coast of Spain, when Admiral Nelson led his fleet of 27 ships of the line against the combined French and Spanish fleet of 33. Now, the usual tactic in naval warfare at this time was basically you draw up parallel lines of ships and you just shoot at each other until such time as either side decides that they've had enough and... and there's just nothing left of their ships or they quit before that happens and they lower their colors and surrender and allow their ships to be boarded. But Nelson, being the the kind of dashing figure that he was, decided he was having none of this. Instead of just drawing up a parallel line, he's like, no. He forms his ships into two perpendicular columns. He hoists a signal that says, England expects that every man will do his duty. And he sailed in two columns straight for the French and Spanish lines, broke their lines, And just a a melee battle ensued in which the British obliterated the French and the Spanish. Like, ten to one casualties. Point blank, like, 50, 60 guns being fired at point blank range. You can only imagine the carnage. Now, let's see if we got a picture of the man himself here. There he is. Lord Nelson. Now, despite the ridiculous hat and the white floofy hair and the lace-trimmed fancy jacket, let's not imagine that Lord Nelson was some kind of a, you know, pansy who, who cowered b- below decks while the battle was going on. No. You see, it was naval custom at that time that the, 
the leaders, the captain, or in this case the admiral, would stand on the quarter deck of their ship and pace calmly up and down while like cannonballs were flying and pieces of the ship were getting blown off. Kind of imagine him there, you know, like doing this. Except there's one thing wrong with that picture. You know what's wrong with this? Nelson only had one arm because his arm had got shot off in a previous battle. And he was blind in his right eye because he'd been wounded in his eye too. Pretty hardcore just standing on the deck of your ship while like cannonballs are flying back and forth. No duck and cover. Just stand firm. Do your duty. Of course, that didn't go so well for him. He was pretty brave. But as he was standing there pacing up and down, a, uh, a French sniper shot him from a nearby ship. Let me just back up here. I have a picture of his jacket, his actual jacket that's still on display in a museum. Can we back that up, Christy? Sure. There it is. There's Nelson's actual coat. And uh, if you look here real closely, you can see the bullet hole just below there. That's, there's no exit wound because it's a it's some smooth bore musket, low velocity. Uh, so he was pacing there, and he was shot. Some people say it was his habit of wearing this blue coat with all the gold buttons and the fancy medallions and all this on it that made him an easy mark. And other scholars say there's no way through all the smoke of battle that anyone would have even been able to see him. They were just flock shooting into the crowd on the deck. At any rate, though, he got hit and he was carried below to the ship's surgeon, but there was nothing they could do for him. He survived long enough to learn that the battle had been won. Nelson was courageous, perhaps to a fault, in standing firm. But he had zero protection standing in the line of fire like that. And for that, he paid dearly with his life. Today, we're going to read about protection. So if you would like to stand, as we typically do for our sermon passage. Ephesians chapter... Oh... I think we still have last Sunday's reading up there. That's fine. You can just listen. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's Word. You can have a seat. 
So we've been looking at living out our faith for some time now. We noted partway through the book of Ephesians, that the, the first half of the book is divided into the more doctrinal aspects of the faith, while the second half of the book is divided, it's the more practical side of things. And Paul's given us a number of images. He talked about walking worthy of our call. He talked about putting off the old and putting on the new. He talked about being imitators of God as beloved children. And now, finally, as he begins this passage, he gives us one last picture. A warrior going into battle. One of the key words in the passage is, of course, stand. The word speaks of far more than just the physical posture of being in an upright position, though. There's There's something of defiance about it when Paul uses this term, right? Stand when you'd rather run away or dive for cover. Stand when everything seems to conspire to cut your feet out from under you. Stand when the storms are roaring. Stand when the battle is raging. And the battle will rage and the storms will blow. Let's take a look at verse 12. We're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against something far more sinister. Spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. Two words about this. First, the fact that there is a spiritual battle does not mean that every minor inconvenience you suffer is the devil himself trying to derail your grand plans and high purposes for being alive. You know, sometimes the internet is just running slow at 11.58 when you decided to wait until then to turn in that paper and upload it to Canvas. You maybe should have planned ahead and got your paper done sooner. Sometimes you just feel overwhelmed and depressed because you've only slept four hours in the past three or four days and you've been living off coffee and dill pickle chips. And that's why you feel depressed. However, the second reality is that sometimes you will walk through something that is unmistakably an encounter with those evil spiritual powers. And when you have to walk through that experience, you might say to yourself, I think I'd take the cannonballs on the deck of an open ship rather than than face this. So how are you going to stand? Look at verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In case you didn't catch it here, in these verses, Paul repeats himself about the strength and the might of the Lord and being strong in it, to the point of sounding ridiculous, he gets so redundant. The strength to stand firm in the midst of chaos and carnage is not your own strength. It's God's strength. Remember back in in chapter 3 when we looked at being rooted and grounded in God's love? Well, it's the same thing here. Right? The strength is not our own. We draw in that strength from outside of ourselves, from God's Holy Spirit at work actively in us. But standing isn't enough. You can be standing firm like none other, and still you go down. Right? Admiral Nelson was standing there like a boss on the deck of his ship, and it took one musket ball, and he was done. It's not just a matter of courage or strength to stand. It's also a matter of being well equipped. In order to stand up, we need to suit up. We need to put on the full armor of God. A couple things to mention before we get into the specific pieces. These probably should be obvious, 
but sometimes obvious things are actually not. So, as with the fruit of the Spirit, as Andrew was telling the children, the armor of God is a package deal. You can't just be like, well, I like the helmet of salvation, I'll put that on, and, and the sword of the Spirit, that's cool, I'll wave that around a bit, and I won't worry about the rest. It's a package deal. You've got to put the whole thing on, or you're going to get seriously wounded in the battle. The other thing to remember is you need to suit up before you try to stand firm, before the battle starts. That's just how it works with anything difficult. The time to start preparing to write an exam is not when you walk into the classroom and put pencil to paper. The time is beforehand to study and prepare and grasp the material. The time to prepare for a championship game is not when you step out onto the ice or onto the court. You better have been putting months and weeks of practice in and drills and conditioning in order to be ready. It's the same thing with this. The time to start preparing for a battle is beforehand. That's why Paul says in verse 13, having done all, right? having put in the work ahead of time, having prepared yourself ahead of time, then you can stand firm. Actually, there's a third thing here, to recognize that the armor is borrowed. You remember our earlier passage from Isaiah chapter 59 when it talked about the Lord, the Messiah, the one who is coming to deliver his people? And it uses a lot of the exact same words. It says that he put on righteousness as his breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. The reason that we can wear this armor as Christians is because our Lord has already worn this armor into battle and conquered with it, and now we can wear it as well. It's borrowed armor. The qualities or virtues it represents are His. And as the theologians like to say, they are imputed to us. So let's look at the pieces. Each of these would have been standard equipment for a Roman soldier, and Paul would have been well acquainted with what their equipment looked like because he was in prison at this point, spent much of his time being actually chained to a Roman soldier while he was being guarded. The belt of truth. Scholars like to debate. They get into these debates about what kind of a belt was this. Was this the foundation garment that the Roman soldier wore under his uniform, or was this the sword belt that he attached his weapons to? You know, it doesn't really matter. The the point is not so much what specific piece of armor it was as what it represents. In any case, the idea seems not to be one of so much of protection, but as securing or supporting. I don't think I can overemphasize the importance of truth, or or perhaps even better, truthfulness, in our speech and in our actions. Remember a couple of weeks back when we looked at those old psychology experiments where people compared lines on pieces of paper and they were willing to obviously say wrong answers because they were going along with the crowd because other people were giving wrong answers. They were willing to say something that they obviously knew not to be true in order not to stand out from the crowd. Nothing really even was at stake in that. So friends, in the culture we live in where there are bigger and more important truths at stake and that are being challenged, what are we going to do? Are we going to be rock solid about the things we believe is the core and the foundation of our faith, right? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. 
I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Are we, are we going to keep standing on those foundational truths of what we believe about our Lord, about God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Church, the Scriptures? If we want to have a hope of standing firm in difficult times, whether personal trials or difficult circumstances or temptations or anything else, we better have those core truths of our faith settled and certain. The breastplate of righteousness. It's a pretty basic piece of armor in ancient warfare as well as modern warfare, policing, right? You've got your your bulletproof jacket. It, it makes basic sense. You want to have your torso covered because that's where your vital organs are and you don't want to take a wound to your heart or your lungs or your abdominals or chances are that you're not going to do so well. Now, it's often been assumed that the breastplate, I've heard this in many sermons, well, there's no, there's no armor for the back. Well, Roman breastplates actually did cover both front and back. The Romans weren't stupid. Like, they knew you could get wounded in the torso and the back, too, so it wrapped all the way around. It's just one of those things that I've often found in sermons. I go, wait a minute, I've seen pictures of that. It covers the back. Now, true, Roman warfare was primarily forward-focused and offense-focused, but still... More important for our discussion today, though, is, is how righteousness protects us. The first thing, we've already looked at this. The righteousness is not our own righteousness. It's the Lord's righteousness. The Isaiah passage makes it clear. Paul, Paul's clearly got Isaiah and these other passages from the Old Testament in mind. He's looking to our Savior and his achievements, and he's applying those achievements to us. As far as righteousness is concerned, this was one of the major convictions of the Protestant Reformation, that righteousness is not ours to achieve, but it's our Lord's to bestow and to give freely justification by faith. Achievement will never be enough to counter that voice, whether it's a voice that you hear in your own head, someone else's voice, the voice of our enemy himself even, maybe, saying, you're not good enough. Look at what you've done. What if people knew? Rather, we need to be able to respond, not by pointing, oh yeah, I, I, I'm okay, but by pointing at our Lord and saying, he's okay. He's done it all. And now I can claim that too. Free gift of righteousness. That doesn't mean, however, that we can just be passive about the need for cultivating righteous living. We should have heard this pretty clearly in the last two or three chapters of Ephesians. Cultivating habits of righteous living protects us when testing times come. Remember what we said just a moment ago about preparing ahead of time. Not cultivating these sorts of habits amounts to giving the devil a foothold, which Paul mentioned just back in chapter 4. You know, when things are going well, when it's not difficult, when we're just kind of coasting along, stuff's happening all right in life, we can get a little bit lax in our, in our spiritual disciplines, the kind of righteous, virtuous habits we're supposed to be cultivating, and nothing bad seems to happen to it. There don't seem to be really any consequences that we have to pay. 
You can let prayer and fellowship and scripture and service slip a little. And oh, you get a little careless in the things you allow yourself to look at or listen to. And oh, there's no immediate consequences. Maybe not. The consequences happen when the testing times come and you've let those good habits slide and suddenly they're not there to fall back on. When you lack the good habits, you get careless in bad ones, it comes home to roost in the time of testing. So cultivate habits of righteousness now. Layer up some protection over your heart and your vitals so that when the testing time comes, you have a chance of standing firm. Gospel footwear. Might actually sound a bit contradictory to talk about the gospel of peace in, in the same context as military armor in battle. But a couple things to keep in mind here. Paul's once again referencing Isaiah, this time chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the, the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Seems like that's in the background as well. This is just rich with references to Isaiah. So let's keep that in mind. And, and I think talking about the gospel of peace in this context that's heavily loaded with military imagery, it's an important reminder because it reminds us that the people that need to hear the gospel are not the enemies to be defeated. Remember, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemies are not people outside of the faith. Those are people that need freeing from the enemy. They're not the enemies to defeat. They're lost people. They're victims in need of liberation. And as such, our message for them is a message of peace. But how does this protect us? Well, in very practical terms, maintaining a healthy outward focus for yourself personally or for a church congregation, it's good. It helps us avoid temptations to get sidetracked by just being inwardly focused and getting nitpicky about things. And being ready in all times and circumstances to explain the gospel to people, it helps us to know what we believe and be solid in it. Being committed to taking the message of faith to those outside our church reminds us that what goes on here isn't about just getting our preferences met. Rather, it's supposed to be about preparation that we've been talking about all throughout this passage. Remembering to put on as shoes for our feet the preparation of the gospel of peace also keeps our feet planted securely on a firm foundation. The gospel of peace is not just about getting us in to the Christian faith. The gospel of peace remains our foundation in the faith throughout our Christian journey and reminds us of the need to be dependent on our Lord. The shield of faith. Romans were experts with shields. Here's something that's especially relevant for our series on being the family of faith. The Romans were experts at using shields in groups. This is how they were victorious so frequently in battle. They would put their shields together, and they had great big shields that could protect a whole person, especially if you were to kneel down behind them. It would just be your, your eyes and the top of your helmet sticking out over the shield, and they'd leave just a wide enough gap in between their shields to put a sword or a spear through. And then how is anybody going to defeat you? You can just keep slowly advancing with the shields up and the spears out, and you just push your enemies back. Another thing they would do is if they were in danger of being assaulted from above, 
They'd even get some of the guys in the back of the line to put the shields up over everybody else's head. And then they could assault a fortified position. If there were rocks or arrows being thrown down at them, they, they would not be vulnerable to them. I think the application is pretty clear. Faith shields us from the flaming arrows of our enemy. Temptations to sin, feelings of discouragement, feelings of despair. And let's remember, faith isn't just believing and knowing the right things in the sense of affirming them. We should always remember that faith also means trust. The trust that we have indeed actually received the righteousness of Christ and we don't have to stand in our own strength is what sustains us. We must always remember that we are sufficient in Him no matter how we feel, no matter what flaming arrows of doubt and despair and temptation come at us. Truth is, however, we can all know this. Right? We know this. Yeah, it's not my righteousness. It's Christ's. I prayed that when I was a kid. I received salvation. But we don't always feel it. We have those moments when we feel weak, when our faith feels like it's at low ebb, and we just we do not feel strong. It's when we need our brothers and sisters in the faith. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it in Life Together. He said, God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. Now, he doesn't mean that it's actually weaker, but he means that it feels weaker to us. Sometimes when someone else speaks the encouraging word, it feels a lot stronger than when we're trying to remind ourselves of the truth of our faith that we know. In other words, we are stronger together. It's a simple fact of the Christian faith. So let's remember that. Let's be encouraging to one another. It's sometimes not very hard. Sometimes it's as simple as making eye contact with people and looking friendly that can be an encouragement to them and let them know that you're there for them, that you care, that you even notice them. And it's, it's that time of year when... Like I said at the start, it's busy, it's stressful, it's getting darker outside by the day. Assignments are piling up, deadlines are there, you find yourself always double booked somehow. You're wondering how you're going to get through to whatever is next. This is the time when we need to be there for one another, to notice one another, to care about each other, to genuinely ask, how are you doing, in a way that actually signals that you're going to wait 30 seconds to maybe hear the real answer. We need to put our shields of faith together and hold one another hold one another up. The helmet of salvation. Paul's language shifts slightly for the last two pieces in a way that's not really apparent in English translations. But he moves from just taking up, equip yourself with these, to, to something that sounds a little bit more like grasp. Right? Grasp the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, or, or draw the sword of the Spirit. There's a bit of a shift in urgency there. It's like we've moved from, 
you know, half an hour before the battle, suiting up to, okay, it's go time. The last thing you do is buckle your helmet on and, and pull your sword from its sheath and get ready to go. Now, in terms of theological order, one might have expected salvation to be the first thing mentioned because that's where the Christian faith starts. But it seems Paul has rather in mind the, the ongoing present tense of salvation rather than simply conversion. Putting on the helmet of salvation isn't getting saved as much as it's working out the salvation that's already yours, applying the salvation that's already yours in day-to-day life, or or maybe you could say appropriating the ongoing reality of being saved. Remember back in chapter 1 of Ephesians when Paul prayed that believers would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That power does not just apply to our lives in this one-shot burst that gets us saved. It's an ongoing power that's available to us day by day by day as we walk the Christian life and as we we fight the, the fight of faith. The sword of the Spirit last piece and and the only truly offensive weapon of them the sword of the spirit which is the word of God and in the literature there's a fair bit of discussion about the terminology used here uh, for the word of God rather than the more common logos uh, for word we have the word rhema some would argue that these two Greek words are basically synonyms while other people would say that the latter refers more to the spoken word it's the Greek root that we get the word rhetoric from I think, in any case, that the idea refers to the word in action. The word of God becomes a sword when it's the word in action. Not just the word that's given assent to, not just the word that's known, but the word in action, in application. It's not just knowing the contents of the Bible or Christian doctrine. It's important, but it's not going to be real helpful in trying times if we're not applying it and living it. Knowing isn't an option. Like, we need to know the Bible, but that's only the first step. We need to know it, not just to know it, but in order to apply it. I think especially of Jesus in the wilderness, when I think about the, the, the spoken word of God, the, the word in action. If anyone ever faced the full onslaught of all the forces of evil and darkness arrayed against him. It was our Lord in his temptation in the wilderness. Temptations were huge. Fall down and worship me and the whole world will be yours. That's a pretty big temptation. And what did the Lord do in order to fight that temptation? He continually, time and again, turned to the scriptures and spoke them and applied them into the difficult situation, into the temptation when it was there coming against him. I don't think we can do any better than our Lord did in his own stand against temptation as we stand against temptations or addictions or or discouragement or sin that keeps tripping us up again and again or anything else that, that can or will come against us. So are we using Scripture this way? Not just to 
get prepped for a class or not just as fodder for papers, but as a weapon to combat sin in our lives. I believe it was John Owen who said famously, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And we have a weapon that's actually capable of doing that. So let's use it. Let's get it out of its sheath, so to speak, and make use of it. I'm earnest when I ask whether we're using it this way. Right? Are we using it for ourselves to, to overcome sin and discouragement and doubts and all those things? And are we using it as we interact with others? Maybe it wouldn't hurt to start our day in a season of the year like this as we're reading the Bible maybe in the morning to prayerfully ask God, is, is there something in here that I should remember if I encounter someone in the day that needs a word of encouragement. Right? Don't, I mean, read it for yourself, of course, but also read it with a view to encouraging others. To encourage them and strengthen them. So that's the, the armor. But there's one more thing. Again, Paul gets pretty redundant here. He, he encourages and exhorts believers that they must pray. He says it in multiple ways. Pray at all times. Pray in the Spirit. Pray with with prayer and supplication. Pray for all the saints. Pray for Him. I think we need to be a genius at scriptural exegesis to clue into prayer is pretty important in applying the armor of God, given the amount of times that Paul says we need to do it. I suppose I could come up with some eloquent words about the importance of prayer, but I don't think many of us need convincing that prayer is important. I think we probably all know that prayer is important and I think furthermore we probably know that we probably need to do a little bit more than we're doing or or maybe a lot more. If I read Paul correctly it seems that a critical I don't know piece but a critical aspect of the armor of God is prayer. The critical aspect maybe because it's by prayer that we actually put on and use the armor that he's given us. It's by prayer that we begin to live into the righteousness that's already ours in Christ. It's by prayer that we become more convinced of the truth of our faith at that deep heart foundational level. It's by prayer that we we recognize and we tap into the power that's ours because of the salvation that's been achieved for us in Christ. It's by prayer that the scriptures become a weapon to overcome sin and discouragement and doubt in our lives and and to do that in the lives of others. I know it's a cliche to say, right? You, You will have all heard this. But when we face hardships, temptations, or the assaults of the enemy or the tragedies of life, prayer must be our first response, not our last resort. You all know that. I know that. May the Lord give us the strength and the discipline to actually make it so. And then we come to the last few verses. Paul, uh, most scholars believe, you know, actually picks up the pen himself instead of dictating to his scribe, writes the last little bit, signs off the letter. And I kind of wish, I kind of wish Ephesians would have ended more like Romans. Like Romans has just about a whole chapter that's just greet this person and greet that person and this person and this other person and these people. Ephesians, he, he doesn't mention anyone by name. And I kind of wish he did, because that would, that would really be good for, for our series on the family of faith. 
listening to Paul read out all these people. But even without the big list of the names, Paul does kind of break the fourth wall, as it were, and he addresses the Ephesians directly. Tychicus, he says, will give you all the news on how things are with me, and presumably tell him how it is with you. He'll come back and tell me about it. Even without the big list of names, there's still a sense of the strong bonds of relationship that the Apostle Paul had with these people. Paul loved the Ephesians deeply. If you remember in the book of Acts, Paul's on the way to Jerusalem at the end of his his final missionary journey, and he makes a special stop. He kind of goes out of his way to make a stop to see the Ephesians one last time before he goes to Jerusalem and his eventual arrest and imprisonment. And it says in, the, in Acts chapter 20, and when he had said these things, he'd given them his final words of encouragement and exhortation, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied to the ship. Paul wasn't just writing for a general audience, although we are thankful that we can read it that way as modern-day people. He was, he was writing to family in many ways as he wrote to the Ephesians. These were people that he loved. When you, you read that deep sense of love, like the manly hugging and kissing that must have gone on there and the tears. Like this, these, this was a heartbreaking time for them. They would never see their beloved Apostle Paul again. He loved these people, and and I hope that as we've spent some time over these last months kind of reading their mail, so to speak, that we've caught a little glimpse of that, or or we've been strengthened in our understanding of of the communal family nature. I I hope and pray that maybe some of that has, has worn off on us a bit. I don't, maybe we're not comfortable with the, the manly hugging and kissing thing. I don't know. Maybe that's a step too far. But maybe it has taken us to a place where we do feel the bonds of our family of faith in this congregation a little bit more strongly. We won't make the kind of progress God would have us make as a church or as the church, except as we come to understand terms like children of God, brothers and sisters in the faith, as more than just polite theological terms. I hope we've seen that for the Apostle Paul, the mark of a healthy Christian community is not how much you collectively know. It's how much you live together in love for one another. In other words, how much you live out what you know. And the truth is, most of us probably know far more than we're living out. That's not to say don't learn. That's not to say don't put in as much effort as you can. But let's make sure we're living it out too. Again, as I said, I know that this season of the year can be a challenging one. Just the, the fact that, you know, our, our attendance is, is a little bit down right now. It's, it's, like I said, it's getting darker out there. It's getting colder out there. Things are, are piling up. It's that season, right? I, I felt it in my own spirit this week, this, this week past. And probably wasn't just because I had a 4,000 square foot plastic mural I needed to paint in two days, cool as that was. But I, I could sense a, a perceptible change in kind of the atmosphere around campus, that people were getting frayed at the ends, 
right? That, that little things were having bigger, bigger results. People were, were more emotional. They were more kind of close to that breaking point than normal. So friends, family, let's resist the temptation when we feel this way, when things get tough or tense, to isolate and withdraw and just go about with our heads down and just try to get through it, even turn against each other. This is the time when we need one another more than ever. Be there for people. Put your shields of faith together. Use the scriptures to encourage one another. Sometimes the best way to keep yourself encouraged is to be an encouragement to somebody else. We need one another, and we need one another more than ever. Paul's command to stand firm in the faith is not a command to stand firm alone. The call is to stand firm together, to have one another's backs. So let's do that today and this week and in the rest of this season up until Christmas, hopefully, with the strength that the Lord provides. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you've given us protection from all that which would threaten to cut us down. Discouragement, doubt, temptation, tragedy, whatever we might face, you give us protection that will will keep us safe and secure as we apply it in our lives. You give us these pieces of armor, each one with a different, a different aspect of, of our spiritual life that needs protecting. May we use it and remember daily to apply it in our lives. Maybe to pray through these, these things daily. And, and let us especially, Lord, remember that we are not... We are not equipping just ourselves, but we are standing together with our brothers and sisters, our family in the faith, to encourage one another, to have one another's backs. May we know the truth today and this week that we stand firm and we stand firm together in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?